0: Hello, I'm Jim White and welcome to It's Friday, your arts and culture guide to this weekend. Coming up, we'll be serving a slice of the first turkey of Christmas.
1: Folks dressed up like Eskimos, everybody knows, a turkey and some mistletoe. I'll be chatting
0: to the creator of the DCI Banks series. It's always difficult to say what a book is
1: about, you know, and, and it takes shape as I write it, so I, I don't do an outline, I don't know where it's going to end when I begin.
0: And enjoying an unexpected orchestral diversion from this national treasure. How I
2: miss, how I miss The colour of the springtime And the moonlight shining through your hair.
0: Joining me to pick through the week are the Daily Mail's film critic Brian Viner, music critic Adrian Thrills, TV critic Claudia Connell, and our all-round entertainment guru, Baz Banigvori. But first, it's been a really sad week for culture in this country, as we lost two of our time's finest polymaths. Jonathan Miller, doctor, comedian, writer, opera director, died at the age of 85. And Clive James, critic, lyricist, poet, television star, passed away at the age of 80 after a long battle with cancer. Here's just the briefest sample of his extraordinary output, his startling poetic summary of his impending end. My daughter's choice, the maple tree is new.
2: Come autumn and its leaves will turn to flame. What I must do is live to see that. That will end the game for me though life continues all the same. Filling the double doors to bathe my eyes, a final flood of colours will live on as my mind dies, burned by my vision of a world that shone so brightly at the last and then was gone.
0: One person who knew Clive James well was our own Jackie Stephen, who joins me on the line from New York. Uh, Jackie, they don't make him like Clive anymore, do they?
3: They really don't. Um, It's an incredibly sad time. Uh, I'm actually very emotional about it. Uh, When I came to London 30 years ago, uh, Clive was such a huge influence on my life. Uh, He was the TV critic that all of us followed, and probably people still follow since, because nobody could talk about television like he did. Nobody took television seriously until he came along, and he was very funny and very insightful. And... I just found him extraordinary. He was very, very well read. He spoke several languages. He wrote prose and poetry and it's ironic that his poetry got better following his leukemia diagnosis 10 years ago because no one took it seriously before then uh,
0: d- did you meet him often on the circuit i mean he was he was as you say the great diane of of television criticism was he often out and about
3: he was often out and about and i did see him quite a lot uh, he, he was very amusing because he was always on a diet but he ended up eating twice as much so he'd have his lean cuisine at home and say he wasn't going to eat. And then he'd have another meal. So he was actually putting on weight because he was having two meals instead of one. He was very, very irreverent about people. He once told me that the novelist Penelope Mortimer was so self-obsessed she'd walk out of an opera because they weren't singing about her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was a very good mimic. He told me a very funny dinner party where Arthur Miller was claiming not to care about Tom Stoppard earning so much more than he did when it mattered to him hugely. And he was impersonating Miller going, but I don't mind, I don't mind. Tom can earn whatever he wants to. But he just banged on about it, the whole dinner party. He was a huge fan of Philip Larkin, the poet, and uh, less one of Ted Hughes, of whom he said Larkin would have seen off those animals in a couple of stanzas.
0: <laughs> one of the things about him, Jackie, I mean, those television shows that he did um in the in, in the eighties and nineties where he used to just look with sort of Absolute astonishment at the Japanese game show. And yet, here we are, sort of 25 years, 30 years later, every night on the television at the moment, we've got I'm a Celebrity, which is based exactly on those Japanese game shows. He was a man well ahead of his time.
1: Here beside the Nile, scrapped a wooden framework from which they can't escape. They are dusted with powdered fish food. Hungry catfish wait in the river for the contestants to join them for lunch.
4: Those who drown are not allowed to go forward to the next
3: stage. Yes, but I think that he recognised the humour in those shows, even though they were cruel. and. With I'm a Celebrity, you've got the classic Japanese show. People doing ghastly things and people being fairly horrible to each other. His body of work in television is enormous. I was talking to one of his uh, camera people yesterday who ended up directing him on his postcards from series. And he said that he learned so much from him because Clive had an eye for the unusual. He was always saying to Robert, Robert Payton, uh, Let's go there and look at this. Let's look at this from a different angle. So they were always finding the unusual and were, were prepared to go off the beaten track.
0: One thing that, about Clive James, and, and you mentioned it uh, earlier there, was an incredibly learned person, incredibly knowledgeable, yet not remotely snobbish. So he was as interested in popular culture as he was high culture. And that's very unusual, isn't it? <laughs>
3: I think that's true, but I think there was a slight snobbery there. When he came to name his Christmas Book of the Year, it was usually something that had been translated from the Italian, when everyone else might have said Geoffrey Archer or something. So I think that because he was an outsider, he was impressed by uh, the high life in a way that perhaps people who were brought up in Britain weren't. And that, that outsiderness also gave him, I, I think, an over-respect for the establishment. He was always talking about how he knew Prince Charles. He'd boast about having lunch with Princess Diana. So I think that he... That goes hand in hand with what I think was a kind of inverted snobbery. He couldn't believe where he'd come from, that he had access to this amazing culture. And although he etted up, he devoured culture and languages and music. There was still that part of him that needed people to see that he was able to do it and that he had an interest in it.
0: Uh, He was um, part of a a great Australian tradition. Jermaine Greer was another one who who came here. Did he always see himself as a bit of an outsider then? I mean, you mentioned it there, but did you feel that when you spoke to him?
3: He had, a, he had very mixed feelings about Australia. He loved going back. And when he was diagnosed, one of his big regrets that he wasn't able to fly anymore. And I know that he enjoyed going back, but he felt that Britain was very much his home
0: his qualities and his skills seemed to have no end, did they? I mean, he was writing really good songs.
3: He was an incredible wordsmith. Like you say, songs, poetry, prose. I remember when I first came across his prose with uh, Unreliable Memoirs, which is the first uh, book that he wrote about himself and when he first came to Britain. And it was hysterical. And then his the TV reviews in The Observer, which I think he did that column for 10 years, they were extraordinary. He had a way with words that was like no other. And like you say, incredibly versatile. He was... One of the funniest people I've ever met. But what was interesting about watching him in a group, he tended to be the person standing aside looking on. I remember him being at a function and uh, Jonathan Miller and Tom Stoppard uh, were at the party and they just gravitated towards each other. And I think he found that incredibly amusing that the two greatest brains in the room would automatically find each other. So he was very much an observer of life. Not a great party go, I wouldn't say. He liked smaller groups, and he liked being the showman. He liked entertaining small groups. You could put him in any dinner party situation, in any small group, and he would be the entertainer. He loved being that. He loved sharing what he knew with other people.
0: Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. A very, very sad week been revealed that last year american television produced 500 drama shows that's an awful lot of box sets to sit through particularly when none of them these days seem to come to an end i've been wondering what on earth happened to a dramatic conclusion i'm joined by claudia connell the daily mails tv critic and baz McBoy our roving entertainment correspondent claudia what did happen to the end of a TV series? I mean, it seems to be going on forever, doesn't it?
5: Yeah, it, it does. It, it's really heartbreaking when you watch a brilliant show just go downhill and become... just descend into this painful drivel. And it, it's it's obviously it's a commercial decision that the, the TV studios make and not an artistic one. If something does well, then they just keep going with it till the bitter end.
0: What's been the worst offender for you?
5: For me, I, I think Homeland, for me... episode of home was just brilliant i thought it was just groundbreaking everyone was talking about it and then it just went on and on and on it got so ridiculous and another recent example is the affair you've had an enormous fall from grace and now you've come full circle would you say that the redemption of noah soloway is complete Now, that has finally ended after series five. But again, it it was brilliant. It was a really good original show with a good cast. And the last series was just daft. They actually started to imagine what might happen in the future in in the last series because they... I'd just run out of storylines,
0: uh, and but presumably this is because of streaming. It's to get us to keep going back, is it? it it's all of that, and I agree.
6: I agree with Claudia because for me, the affair was over after episode one. Frankly, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not a fair uh, that would go on forever in my head. Um, but no, it's streaming. Also, a lot of actors are signed to these seven-year contracts, which are very expensive, and they get all these writers in the writers' room, and they get all these all the episodes done in advance in the main, you know, sort of the writing of them. And so they feel they've got to make them. But they do go on forever. I mean, Peaky Blinders. Take a
4: little
0: walk to the edge of the town and go across the now, no, Peaky Blinders isn't, of course, a streaming thing, so no, it, it's tr- it's, nor is it commercial. It's, it's on, on the BBC. It's
6: on the BBC, and the first series and the second series were very, very good, but now, tune in now, and I think, what on earth is going on? Even it's, my it's dogs fall asleep. It's commercial, though,
5: because they had a Peaky Blinders festival this summer.
0: And Did that sh- come to an end, or is it still
6: going <laughs> so, on? Well,
5: I think they're doing another one next year, so it has obviously become a, an earner for the BBC. I'm
0: Baz, you were mentioning how expensive these shows are, but surely if you keep coming back, if a series works and they bring it back, it gets more expensive because presumably the agents are saying, well, if you want the show, you want my person, and it's going to cost you more. Well, there's that, but if you've already built the sets, like Game of Thrones, for instance...
6: i mean they created new worlds as it were in, in, in belfast where they shot it so it paid them to keep it going for as long as possible
0: even though none of us knew what on earth was happening i mean now game of thrones did come to an end yes but a lot of people were disappointed by the end maybe if it had carried on there wouldn't have been that disappointment claudia
5: Well, actually, uh, making a TV show that's based on a book and then carrying it on after the book has ended is is happening with The Handmaid's Tale.
0: This is not a TV show, but Baz just slapped his forehead at <laughs> well, the very mention I mean, of that man's Margaret the
6: Atwood, I think her novel, The Hand Man's which she wrote twenty, thirty years ago, is about 300 pages. I mean, it's on its fourth series in 2020. Yeah. And the cha- she, I mean, the characters are just ridiculous now. I so mean, what, it's what unwatchable. You're basi- what
0: you're basically saying is that drama has become soap.
1: Yeah.
6: Yeah, well, and even the even the crowd love it as we do, yeah. and that will come to an end. Well, the crowd has to come to an it end because, to, it's, because it's, it's about Her reality. Her it's um, getting slower, mind you. It's getting a little slower, and uh, and it, but it's a great show. But it's beautifully beautifully shot. i you know, there, there's a bit of um, uh, disappointment about some of the casting, though. Have you heard that, Claudia? Really? Uh, what about the, about n- n- the new casting? No, cast, not the, the new casting. Right. The current. I mean, I'm yeah. hearing some disappointment about Olivia Coleman's uh, performance.
3: On days like today. Ask yourself, in the
5: time I've been on the throne, what have I actually achieved?
3: For the times, they are changing. This country was still great when
5: I came to the throne. All that's happened on my watch is the place has fallen apart. You cannot flinch. It's only fallen apart if we say it has. That's the thing about the monarchy we paper over the cracks
0: slightly going off track here is the queen i've never met her but we're always I told have. baz i, I was yeah, going sure to say i'm sure you have her. i uh, but in we're always told in the background she's a very amusing woman but olivia colman looks permanently as if she's just swallowed a wasp <laughs> there's a lot of looking out the window sort of looking very stern and you know she's
6: very cold towards charles and i think that must all be in the script or it may be just that um you know because olivia does get the giggles she, she, she's a giggler so I think, so someone was telling me that she put this stern face on so she wouldn't laugh
0: now you're talking about these series that just go on and on and on Thanks. have you ever seen oh. one that's actually managed to sustain the level of interest over time or inevitably does it diminish
5: I, I think west wing i would say that's probably about the only example i could think of where the quality didn't dip
0: I mean, some do come to an end. Breaking Bad came to an yeah. end. Um, House of Cards, on the other hand, managed to keep going even after its lead actor was sort Spacey. of um, yeah. discredited.
5: Yeah, I mean, again, and it, that was a, a great drama that just ended up becoming sort of tarnished and not just by, you know, by Kevin Spacey, but by the fact that they took a great show and made it awful by the end. So,
0: Baz, are the producers misreading the audience then? Are they just assuming that we'll we'll lap up something because we become addicted to it and they're forgetting that, actually, we like a bit of drama, we like an end? There, there's something to
6: that. And as, as we were talking, I was thinking of, um, it's not quite a drama series, but 40 Towers. I think they did, back in the day, they did, what, seven or eight yeah, episodes? Yeah. And John Cleese refused to write any more. <laughs>
4: Manuel, these, there is too much butter on those trays, okay. There is too much butter on those trays. No, 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 senor. Not, not on those trays. No, sir. Uno, dos, tres. Okay.
6: <laughs> and it's gone down in, in, in comic TV history as one of the best comedy series ever written.
0: And they are limited. The Office, as well, is another one. Interesting difference between The Office in England, yeah. Ricky Gervais' uh, show, and the American version. Yes. And the American version seemed to go on forever.
5: Yeah, so so Ricky Gervais nipped it in the bud, and a bit like Faulty Towers, he kind of went out on a high, although he did a Christmas special a few years later, didn't he? Which, again, I think was, was quite good, where um, Dawn got together with... I can't remember. The Christmas it. special yeah. made
0: me weep,
6: Claudia. Yeah,
5: I, I loved the Christmas. I was afraid that it would be it would mm. ruin it and it would be bad, but it was good. But yes, the, the American one, on and on and on. Yeah. But the
6: other thing about American TV series particularly is, is that I don't know if it's still the case now, but once upon a time, if you if if there were a hundred episodes, they would go into syndication and make a fortune. Friends. So no one told you that was gonna be
0: this way.
6: I mean, they made over 100 episodes. That is a $100 million earner even now. 20 is it really? Yeah, 20 years after it
0: was finished. So people are still tuning yes, in that's for friends. That's, yes, that's one of the things. I forgot, well, that, 100 episodes. That's a really interesting uh, thing about streaming, isn't it? Mm. That Actually, you know when people go into their streaming sites actually what they're searching for is old uh, editions of Friends, Seinfeld and they're not looking at any of these 500 new dramas how are they ever going to yeah. get their heads above the parapet?
5: I don't know, I don't know is the answer to that um, we've got, um, I suppose that the, the BBC are making uh, programs like, like Gold Digger, I mean that, that's on at the moment but I, I wouldn't have thought there's anywhere to go with that having seen the ending but you never know
6: and there was that lovely TV series uh, a couple of weeks ago, really good drama, I thought, uh, called The Capture, which was really cool about sort of... Um,
5: oh, the CCTV. Yeah, yeah CCTV yeah. and yeah.
6: surveillance uh, uh, capabilities. And I thought, it I mean, it does beg a second series, and that should end after the second series. I'm alerting you now, BBC two only. Yes, don't, uh,
5: don't uh, do a line of duty. Well that's <laughs>
0: what. The line of duty ha- was one of my favorites. Yeah. It, there's a new series coming out. We're getting little hints about what's going to be in it. Do you fear? that line of duty even line of duty uh, might be coming a bit diluted
5: oh i think it did i think it has with the last i think when it switched to bbc but the it's a huge ratings winner i think the last series which was series five i think um got over 12 million viewers so that's massive for the bbc all good
0: things come to an end and even this discussion must now end series is over (laughs) (laughs) claudia thank you Uh, thank thank
1: you (laughs)
0: Time for Hits and Misses, our regular part where our critics get right to the heart of the matter and tell us what they really think about the week's new offerings. And um, I'm joined by Adrian Thrills, the Daily Mail's music critic. Um, Adrian, what have you been listening to? Well, I've been getting into the festive spirit this
2: week. I think we're almost in December, aren't we? So um, so there's a new Robbie Williams Christmas album, the Christmas present. It's Robbie's first venture into the uh, seasonal market. He's obviously trying to reclaim some of the festive spirit from Michael Bublé, who obviously are the most successful Christmas album of recent times. So, so Robbie's put together this um, mammoth Christmas album. It's a 28-track double album divided into Christmas past and Christmas future. Chestnuts
1: roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping
2: at your nose. And it's a real mixed bag, I'm afraid. There's... Uh... There's the usual kind of festive favourites Robbie's take on Winter Wonderland Let It Snow he goes the full on buble on those in fact I think he was actually toying with calling the album Actung Buble but, <laughs> uh, which would have been great but he's decided on the slightly tamer The Christmas Present um, very scary sleeve by the way he kind of looks a little bit like the child catcher of Chichi Chichi Bang Bang on the, on the cover and there's, there's posters plastered all over the underground that might scare small children with their parents doing Christmas shopping, but... Uh,
0: so it's called The Christmas it's, Present. It's, um, it, 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 there's, a, there's a clue in that, in that title. I mean, uh, is it a hit or a miss? Would you go for it as a Christmas present? Well,
2: I think there's some really interesting original songs. There's, you know, Robbie's done with his sidekick Guy Chambers. He's written some really good new Christmas songs. and And I think there's actually a really good single album in there, but it's at 28 tracks it's almost like he's forgotten the art of making an album and there's so much filler and hit and miss material um, i say i'm going to have to be a bit scrooge-like and make this one a
0: miss who else is uh, trying to get us to buy them for Christmas?
2: Well, um, taking time off his uh, his um, carefully assembled train set, Rod Stewart's found the time to, uh, to lend his vocals to a new orchestral album. Uh, he's been given the, the kind of classical treatment along the same lines as um, Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley, The Beach Boys. It's, it's kind of very much the done thing these days for seasoned pop veterans to be given the string treatment. And... It's actually rather good. How I miss, how I miss The colour of the springtime And the moonlight shining through your hair Say hello to my friends And all I can you tell them I will soon be there He's re-recorded a couple of songs. He's done a new version of Maggie May to kind of suit the string treatment. There's a rather horrendous duet with Robbie Williams. They've done a version of the Marvin Gaye and Kim Weston song It Takes Two but it's just great to hear Rod's original vocals on some of those old tracks reason to believe and I don't want to talk about it i mean it's a bit schmaltzy in places but it's it's really good fun and Rod he's he's such a strong vocalist that his his singing really does stand up to the symphonic treatment of the royal
0: philharmonic orchestra it's interesting about Rod, isn't it? He's on tour at the moment. He's a man well into his 70s. Other performers mentioning no names Paul McCartney, their voice seems to have d- diminished over time, but Rod's just keeps getting better, doesn't it? Which doesn't actually sound that different to how it sounded in
2: 1971-72 when he was he first broke through with with Maggie May and Reason to Believe. It's uh, you know, he, he's a really, he's a national treasure and he's he's such a good singer and he doesn't take, he takes his music seriously but I don't think he takes himself too seriously. He's, he's a great showman live and once he has his tall legs, he's, he's got a great band and he, he does put on a really good show. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing his show actually when he comes to London in a couple of weeks.
0: Is this a hit or a miss? This one's a hit. And now to what's going on in the cinemas. Daily Mail film critic uh, Brian Viner joins me. Uh, Brian, what have you been watching?
4: Well, Jim, I saw a, a screening, an early screening of Little Women, which doesn't actually come out until Boxing Day, but... You know, clear your schedules now because this film is just fabulous. I loved it. It's uh, Little Women, as I'm sure you know, Jim. I'm sure you're a great uh, fan of the book. Um, <laughs> I've the heard of May it. Alcock's I've book. heard of it, Brian. It's been done before. <laughs> let's say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, the reason May Apple's famous book, written in the 1860s, uh, it's been adapted for the screen. Countless times. I mean, the first one was was back in 1917. It was a silent version, and it's been done time and time again since then. And uh, listeners will remember the the Elizabeth Taylor version. There was a um, oh, it's been it's been just about every generation has has attempted it. But this one by Greta Gerwig, who's an extremely talented uh, writer, director, actress, uh, although she's not in it herself. She has made a really, really lovely job of it. Um, it's very clever because she has sort of mucked around with the chronology a little bit. So we go back and forth in time, but actually that works really, really well as we follow the lives of these four sisters who were growing up in New England during the, the US Civil War. I'm working
5: on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sisters.
4: Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end.
5: Ow! want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. What well, you want to, isn't it, Joe? to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says,
4: my girls have a way of getting into mischief. And it's, it's really just kind of episodic. We follow their lives, as, as uh, all readers of the book will remember. But it's beautifully acted. Saoirse Ronan, who's such a talented young actress. She plays Joe March, the four March sisters. Uh, Emma Watson, who I have to say is not one of my favourite actresses. I think she generally sort of been over-promoted as a result of Harry Potter, but nevertheless, she's, she's very charming in this. Uh, Florence Pugh, who is just fabulous, uh, and an Australian actress called Eliza Scanlon. The, one of the quirks, Jim, of this film is that, um, you know, you've got, it's a quintessential American story, but you've got four uh non American actresses playing the these four lead roles. Have they just not um, got have they just most, not got
0: actresses yeah. in America then? I mean it, it's an extraordinary thought <laughs> well, that, isn't play, it?
4: You know, they use I know it is odd, isn't it? But they yeah, you know, they use uh actresses that they kind of farm them out to play to play our you know, to play Margaret Thatcher <laughs> and things like that, don't they? So uh, it's all it's all a bit cockeyed. But um and speaking of Margaret Thatcher, uh, Meryl Streep, who of course played the Iron Lady uh, she's in it, so she is very American, um, and she plays Aunt March, who is this very sort of waspish spinster character. She's she's absolutely terrific. She reminded me actually of um, of Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. It's a similar sort of character, you know, all these kind of waspish put downs. But she's she's terrific. And Laura Dern plays the the mother of the sisters, uh, also delightful. Timothy Chalamet, marvelous young actor, he's, he's he plays the character Laurie who. Grows up with the girls and eventually falls in love with at least one of them. I better not give anything away for those who don't know the story. Um, Anyway, it's all absolutely delightful. I loved it. It's very, it it sort of feels quite modern, really, although it's, you know, it's very meticulously a period movie, but it, it feels quite modern. I was sobbing like a. Like a baby at the uh, well. So various bits of this film. That's Tears and like. me,
0: Brian, are, uh, are old friends. Um, I've got a feeling where yeah. you're going with this, but hit or miss.
4: So unequivocally, it's a, it's an absolute five star hit.
0: And what else have you been seeing?
4: Well, there's a film out called The Nightingale, you know? and and um, it's made it's it's another um, female director, Jennifer Kent, she's Australian. Uh, Now, some listeners might remember she wrote and directed a film called The Babadook about five years ago or so, uh, which is an extremely good horror film, Uh, really, really brilliant, terrifically scary, very, very well crafted, uh, and it was her debut. And you know, so she really kind of burst onto the scene. This is her second outing, I think, uh, and it's called The Nightingale. It's also set very much in Australia, but she takes it. Right back in time to the 1820s, uh, and it's really about the sort of well, the backdrop is the is the kind of the English genocide of the of the Aboriginal population. Sing a song, The one for me.
5: I wish I were on
3: yonder. Hill.
4: We don't want no trouble. That's just the way,
0: isn't it? <laughs> you don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. <laughs>
4: So mean it's pretty grim stuff, but the i mean it is throughout an extremely violent, brutally violent film um, and it really the story is is about a, a young woman called claire who's who's an Irish woman uh, who has some terrible terrible uh, depredations visited upon her. She, she, she's there's a guy called um, Lieutenant Hawkins, played by Sam Claflin, who I think we're more used to seeing as a sort of hero figure, but uh, he's absolutely horrible in this film. And he's uh, well, without wanting to give too much away, but he he rapes her. And he's oh, it's just terrible. And he and his soldiers degrade her and really the story is about her trying to get her revenge but to do so she has to cross australia and she can only do that with the help of a guide who is who is an aboriginal guide uh, and they have this sort of slightly edgy relationship the two of them but they uh, they sort of become friends and eventually you know she she meets her nemesis so uh, this guy lieutenant hawkins
0: brian brutally violent and it's yeah. about australia is it a hit or a miss
4: well you know it's i mean it's it's a well-made film but the violence is too much and uh, you know it's just it's a bit kind of one-dimensional and so therefore i'm gonna have to say it's a miss
0: well now you know what's worth seeing and what's worth avoiding now let's meet this week's guests Peter Robinson is the author of the brilliant DCI Banks books. Um, Born in Yorkshire, he these days lives in Canada, where he's resided for some time. He's just been over in England, however, doing a tour to promote the latest in his series, a book called Many Rivers to Cross. Um, Hello, Peter. Hello there. Um, you've just done... I, I couldn't believe how many dates you did on your Meet the Author tour. Um, do, do, do you enjoy um, coming up with, uh, uh, across the fans like that?
1: Yeah, it, it was a bit of a whirlwind. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's a different part of the writing job. I mean, mostly I'm by myself, just making things up. Uh, but this time, you know, I can actually go out, travel around, see people, see new places um yeah sometimes the travel it, it does get you down a little bit you know especially when things go along like the trains <laughs> <So> <laughs> the whole, Just, pretty let's, good.
0: let's not even get into that conversation <laughs> um, yeah. you've been in canada a long time you went there um after you graduated didn't you as a, a student to do postgrad um work at work in canada yet you yeah. write about yorkshire how often do you kind of get back to your home county to kind of update
1: well, I get back about twice a year. I have a place in, in Richmond, North Yorkshire. So, you know, we're going to stay there for for a month or so. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm back for two or three months a year, which, you know, is enough to do research and to absorb what's going on there. More than enough last time, anyway.
0: Living in Canada, though, does it give you a, a sort of outsider's perspective? Does it actually help to you to sort of know what's going on in Yorkshire, almost?
1: Well, it did at first. I mean, I, you know, I like writing from a distance. You know, there's, there's some writers who just just can't do it they need to be in the place to write about it but I I don't mind the distance at all and I think in the earlier books it gave me a a, a sort of objective view a very different perspective than I would have had living there within it all but I think now I'm spending more time there that that's changed a a little bit so that there's a bit less of the seeing it as a tourist and, and a bit more of seeing it as an insider.
0: Uh, t- tell me about your hero. Tell me about Alan Banks. Do you do you actually like him?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, he's he started out as uh, you know, I, I just wanted a, an ordinary kind of character with a family man, with kids, and and of course, as a, as the series has progressed, he's he's gone through all kinds of changes, partly to do with his work, partly to do with family life, and now he's he's become a very uh, a sort of philosophical, introspective figure, living alone, just enjoying little wine and music, uh, a little bit antisocial. So I'm not sure what I can do about that. You know, I'd like to drag him out of it sometimes. Is that is that you? To, is that you, Peter? Is you, no, you? not at all. No, <laughs> no, that's not me at all. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I like going out and, and meeting people and doing stuff. I do like listening to music and uh, sipping a little wine occasionally, but. I think a lot of
0: people's um, first uh, uh, association with DCI banks um, is uh, on the TV. Stephen Tompkinson plays him. Rapid smoke inhalation. People usually fall on their backs. This man's on his front. He was unconscious when the fire started.
6: Right, could be.
5: Do you eat holiday on your own? Meet people? Make friends? Did you talk to anyone?
0: Not really. Weirdo. Was he your idea of DCI Banks or or, or, or was he very different?
1: No, it was very different in in my mind. But, I mean, I expected that. I I knew that I wasn't going to have a say in in the actor who was going to play Banks. That was very much down to the the, the TV production company. Um, So you know I, I didn't expect him to look like my idea and not did the readers i mean i get a lot of stuff on tour by people saying they don't see Stephen as banks i, do, I think he did a great job and you know i did didn't bother me at all when the thing got going
0: well one of the things about your books uh, they're brilliant on on police procedure presumably you're constantly meeting uh, cops uh, to to do research um, do they enjoy uh having their brains picked um for your book
1: I think they do. I think they do. Um, I, you know, I don't do it as much as I used to. I, I, I think I reached saturation point. You know, with worrying about every little detail, and now I I, I go more for the the grand sweep, you know, the big picture rather than and, and leave out a lot of that stuff. But I, yeah, I mean, I enjoy I enjoy chatting with you know friends I have from the police, and I think perhaps the most interesting thing for me is that we have a an idea of what police are like from a distance or what from what, what we get in the news but when you're actually with them they have the same concerns and interests as everyone else and that's why you know i had this thing about making banks a, a generally ordinary person with the kind of concerns that all readers can relate to
0: i, I read one of your books called aftermath uh, where i was expecting you know lots of police procedural what I wasn't expecting uh, was to be, frankly, scared out of my wits. Um, how, how do you write scary? I mean, uh, I kind of understand how you do it in a movie. There are certain, uh, there are certain procedures that you go through to, to scare people, the jump cut and so on. How do you write scary?
1: I think you just go into a dark place. And for me, I don't think I realise that something's going to be scary un- until it's done. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not saying I, I completely lose myself in the writing. I know what I'm doing. But I'm not a great planner. I don't do outlines, you know, and, and I don't sort of organize how I'm going to do the scares, or whatever. It it just comes out that way. And some books demand it more than others. I mean, people will tell you in general, my my books are not scary, and they don't have a great deal of violence. Aftermath is a kind of standout in both of those areas.
0: Uh, What about Many Rivers to Cross? Is that either scary or violent?
1: I think it's scary simply because of the nature of, of, of the plot. Um, I mean, it, it certainly has some of the tension of a thriller. You know, there, there are certain things going to happen. You know they're going to happen. You don't know how, you don't know how it's going to turn out. Uh, in some ways, it's more of a thriller than, than a whodunit, though it does have a whodunit element. Uh, there is one particularly violent scene and, and also the aftermath of another violent scene. But uh, they were difficult to do. But in the end, and, and you know, I debated about one of them whether I should keep it the way it was, and I decided in the end to do so. And I think it was the right decision.
0: And and how many more uh, have you got up your sleeve? Is it is it does it become an easier process as you've got become uh, more established, or, or or is coming up with a new plot ever harder?
1: It gets harder, I think, because you use material. You know, you use things up. You put. Bits of your your own life in the books, in the characters, and you know you you, you base your plots on, on certain things that people have told you or you've read about, and it does get harder to find something original from book to book.
0: And are you a, an avid reader? Do you read other people's um, attempts at, at at the same genre, or do you avoid those like the plague?
1: No, I do, and I, you know I also get sent a number of books to to uh, make comments on. Uh, sometimes I get them done, sometimes I don't, but yeah, I, d- I do try and keep up with my contemporaries, yeah. And and who do you enjoy? Well, I like um, American crime fiction, Con- you know, Michael Connolly, Lee Child series. Uh, I try and keep up with English writers, Scottish writers, like Ian Rankin, and I like some of the the Scandinavian uh, noir fiction too.
0: Peter, it's been delightful uh, talking to you. I, I hope many rivers to cross, um, drops into many a stocking this Christmas. Thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> Now it's back to the hits and misses. This time, what's coming up on television with Claudia Connell, the Daily Mail's TV critic. Um, Claudia, what have you been watching this week?
5: Well, I I haven't watched it yet because it's live, but I wanted to talk about X Factor Celebrity because the final is tomorrow night. We didn't have a regular X Factor this year, so instead there was this celebrity version um, and just the sound of the barrel being scraped <laughs> is so loud on this although that well, even
0: even now they're at the final i mean yes, is, is well, there no talent been emerged from the celebrity mire? the
5: semi-final 1.2 million watched the semi-final that's a disaster for ITV mm. on a saturday night primetime i mean it's up against strictly so it's it's on a loser there but it's 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 just it's been a shockingly awful program how it ever got cleared i've got no idea um along the way we had um celebrities like Martin Bashir and Ricky Lake and Vinnie Jones and now we're down to the finalists and um quiz for you Jim see if you've heard of them um Megan McKenna mean anything to you Straight over the top of my uh, Towie. head. She's from Towie. Right, she's okay. actually, she's probably the best one in it, and I imagine that she's going to win. And there's um, Jenny Ryan, who was one of the chasers in The Chase. There's, and then all the others are uh, social media influencers. There's a, a girl band called V5 who are made up of South American social media influencers. And this is meant to be a celebrity X Factor. It's just, it's awful. Is, it's is so that the problem? Is
0: the problem that they aren't sufficiently celebrity, or is the fact that x factor in the past seem to be discovering people and and, and because they're not really being discovered um, we're not that interested in yeah
5: them. i mean x x factor just had a shelf life and i, I think it's it's passed sell by date the last few series just haven't done well i couldn't name a single person that's won in the last few years um and it's just it's bad news for itv because they've actually they've bought the rights for it for a, a, until 2022 i think
0: I know where you're going with this, hit or miss. (laughs) You see it
5: coming. Uh, It's an almighty miss.
0: (laughs) Okay, so that's that's the bad news. Uh, Any
5: good news out there? Yeah. Well, Vic and Bob's big night out. That's that's uh, back on on BBC Four.
2: They've arrived for a big night out. It's Vic and Bob.
5: The first episode was last night, but um, the the second episode um, next Thursday is. I think it's it's even better. So, I mean, you. You either love or you hate their surreal sort of brand of comedy. But but I, I love it. I also love that they they go away and they do their own thing. Like um, Vic was in Coronation Street and Bob did his fishing program with Paul Whitehouse. And then they come back and they do their comedy. But it's just... I, I think they're very clever or I think they're very original and it's just I, I think it's just lovely humor they open every show with a song and dance routine and they've got a few regular characters
0: they are they are very surreal I yes. mean there's they're, they're still plowing that, that oh yeah fur, oh yeah uh, Yeah,
5: definitely so, yeah but, still, they haven't changed
0: but I, actually Bob, Bob Mortimer seems to have developed a, as a person as a as a performer doesn't he you mentioned the fishing um, yeah. he's always he's always the star turn on would I lie to you he seems to have grown from the, the partnership has that brought strength back to the partnership
5: yeah think? I, I think I would agree with that because it, it was always I mean when it, the, st- the show started on Channel 4 it was Vic Reeves Big Night Out and Bob Mortimer was very much the sort of the sidekick but it, he has grown and he is yeah He's, he's, he's very talented yeah.
0: I went to one of them like London store, big London department store Yeah, I went to the electrical department right Ooh. and I said is there anyone who can sell me a kettle and the bloke says Kenwood and I said yeah well can you fetch me in then so that's one too
5: D- yeah that's a big hit for me
0: <laughs> brilliant thanks very much indeed Claudia And that's it from It's Friday this week. Thanks to all my guests and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at itsfriday at mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back again next Friday and every week with your MailPlus briefings at mailplus.co.uk. But for now, goodbye.